Our first reading is from the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is from the book of John, chapter 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his son sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise you. We pray with me. Lord God, we praise you for the work which you do in us. We praise you for making us new, for making us beautiful, even the, out of the ashes of our sin. Lord, we rejoice that as we've come this day, you've filled us with forgiveness. We pray, Lord, as you're forgiven people, that you also embolden and empower us by the work of your spirit, that we might be people who are about forgiveness, that we might be people who share and extend that forgiveness freely to others. Lord, speak to us through your word, that the meditations of our hearts, the words of our lips would be acceptable in your sight. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. This morning, you heard the reading from the Gospel of John. And you heard that account of what Jesus did for his disciples and the commissioning that he sent them out with. And, and it's really important for us to, to dig into that story and to spend a little time with that account and what's written for us. Because one of the things that we, uh, we can do, one of the things we can have a tendency to do anyway, is to simply talk about things, right? Rather than getting into the midst of them. We can talk about forgiveness in the church. In fact, we could spend time just talking about forgiveness by saying the things that the Bible says. We could reflect on what forgiveness is and what it does, but that wouldn't really impact us. Instead, what we need to understand is what God does in order to forgive us, what God does to work forgiveness in our hearts, what God does to work forgiveness in each one of our lives, because then, as we've experienced forgiveness, then we are forgiven people. We understand that on a different level. Of course, the need is there to understand, the need is there to define all those things are important. But what the scriptures teach us, in fact, what Jesus teaches us in John chapter 20, is what it means to be forgiven. Now, you might not see that on the surface of this account, but as we dig deeper into it, you'll understand, you'll see how God works in the lives of his followers and how God works in us. So let's, let's start with the account of John 20. It starts off with a detail that John gives. He tells us that it was the evening of that first day of the week. So what was that first day of the week? What's the that first day of the week that he's talking about? You guys are looking and say, I didn't know there'd be a test this morning. There is. 
All right, so we know it's Sunday. What Sunday? It's Easter Sunday. Now, see, you might have missed it because there weren't flowers and trumpets and loud processional. This is the first Easter. This is evening of the first Easter. And in the Gospel of John, the only person who has interacted with Jesus, who's actually interacted and spoken with Jesus, is Mary. Not Mary, his mother, Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus had cast demons. She's the only one who's interacted with Jesus, who's actually spoken with him. She didn't recognize him at first, remember, because he was posing as a gardener. But it's only when he speaks her name, Mary, that she answers, good teacher. Right? She knows it's Jesus. That's the only interaction that there's been in the Gospel of John. And after that interaction, she runs and she tells the disciples that what's happened. The disciples don't know whether to believe her. You can imagine, you can imagine that they'd be on edge, right? Because after all, what they did know was that Jesus was dead. They had seen that. And they were going on the basic knowledge that we all have, that people who are dead tend to stay that way, Right? But now here comes Mary, and she's telling them something very different. They've seen that the body is gone, but they wonder if there's been some kind of a hoax. They wonder if in some way they've been hoodwinked, if there's some kind of a a conspiracy afoot, that perhaps someone has stolen Jesus' body, and maybe now there's a vast conspiracy that's going to get all the people who are followers of Jesus. They don't know what's going to happen. And so it's evening on that first day of the week. They're all together, and the doors are locked. And they're locked, why? Because they're afraid. In fact, what it tells us in the text is they have a, a super fear. They're, they're greatly afraid. It's not just like, oh, I'm afraid of the dark. Did I just admit that out loud? It's more than that. It's like I'm afraid of the one who's going to come and get me. The doors are locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. And as those doors are locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, they're isolated among themselves. And what does Jesus do? He forsakes their locks, and he stands in their midst. Now I'll admit, I don't know how he did it, right? I mean, part of me wants to see the Hollywood version of this and just to see what it's like. But we're not told. Did he he just like walk through the door? Did he knock on the door and they opened the lock and let them in. We're not told. We're told that the doors are locked because they they fear a great fear. And when Jesus stands in their midst, you have to understand something. You have to understand the way that you would feel if you were in that situation. Because the last time that any of them had seen Jesus, he was dying on a cross. The last time that they had interacted with Jesus, they were in a garden when they all fled. You see, Peter wasn't the only one who denied Jesus. He was just the most vocal about it. Peter, who had, in the courtyard, declared words that Jesus heard, I do not know the man. The last words that Jesus heard from one of his disciples. Well, John had been with him at the cross, but he certainly hadn't fought to get him down. Nobody had come to his aid. Nobody had pushed any farther than the initial conflict in the garden, and they had seen him die. And understanding that they had seen him die, now Jesus was there, alive, in their midst. The first thought going through their heads is what? Has he come to enact vengeance on us? 
And so that makes Jesus' first words particularly telling. Jesus forsakes their locks, stands in their midst, and he says, peace be with you. The peace that he declares is a, is a peace of wholeness, a peace of righteousness. It's declaring that all is right with them. And think of how that overwhelmed the disciples. They who had sinned against Jesus, they who had, had done things deliberately to oppose him, they who had denied him, now standing in their midst is Jesus, very much alive, and he says to them, peace be with you. And then he shows them his hands and his side. And as Jesus shows them his hands and his side, I imagine that it's probably Peter who's the first one to speak up, right? Who says, so, so what was the cross like? And what it says is that they're not filled with great fear anymore, but the text tells us they're overjoyed because Jesus is with them. They're overjoyed because Jesus is in their midst. And as Jesus declares to them, it is finished, as Jesus declares to them, peace be with you, he is declaring the same words he said from the cross, it is finished. See my hands and my side. Understand that this is why I have come. I've come that you might have peace. When I said to you, peace be with you, I meant it. And brothers and sisters, in that moment, the disciples understood forgiveness in a way that few really could. They understood forgiveness in all of its completeness, in the way that it set them free. You see, Jesus didn't come and stand in their midst and say, hey, when I went to the cross, it meant that I paid the price with my heavenly Father so that you might have my cloak of righteousness placed upon you, that though your sins were as scarlet, they would be white as snow. He didn't come and explain to them, the ledger sheet is now complete, and you must confess your sins before my Father, and you will always have this. No, he came in the midst of sinners, and he said, peace be with you, so that they could experience forgiveness, so that they would know that they were forgiven. And you see, this word, brothers and sisters, this, this word is for all who need to be forgiven. It's for all who are willing to confess their sins before God. It's for all who wish to know what Jesus has done. Jesus came to forgive people. He came to forgive because there were lots of sinners with whom Jesus interacted, right? All sorts of people who needed to be forgiven. And you think through the Gospels, you can come up with all sorts of people. You can come up with, with a woman who was caught in adultery. You can come up with, with a manager who was shrewd and stole wages from his employees. You can come up with a tax collector who took too much. You can come up with soldiers who were too brutal with the people they were supposed to be protecting. You can come up with all sorts of people who needed to be forgiven. People who needed a savior. That's what Jesus came for. He came to extend peace to a people who couldn't be forgiven any other way. And what was remarkable is that we have to understand and remember who Jesus was because Jesus walked around, right? Those examples that I just gave you were true examples that Jesus gave us, examples from the scriptures that happened before the cross, examples of people that Jesus interacted with, and he walked around forgiving those people. And if Jesus isn't who he said he is, then we've got a problem. 
Because Jesus walked around forgiving people as if they had sinned against him. And if he's just a man, then they hadn't. So stick with me for a second. One of my, one of my favorite writers is C.S. Lewis. I know a lot of you will appreciate him as well. Most famous for writing the Chronicles of Narnia. One of C.S. Lewis' most famous books is a book called Mere Christianity. Mere Christianity was actually a series of lectures that he gave over the radio as he gave his kind of defense for the Christian faith. And he spoke to this very issue. And I want to read this for you. It's, it's a long paragraph, so just bear with me. This is what C.S. Lewis writes. One part of a claim tends to slip past us unnoticed because we've heard it so often is that we, and we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean, the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, it's really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toes, and I forgive you. You steal my money, and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man, himself unrobbed, his toes untrodden upon, who announced that he forgave you for treading on another man's shoes and for stealing another man's money? Asinine fatuity is the kindest description that we should give of his conduct, yet this is exactly what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all the people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would only imply what I can regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. I love the way C.S. Lewis writes things, don't you? Asinine fatuity. In other words, absurd craziness is what we would say about somebody like that. Somebody who forgave you for stepping on someone else's toes. But in so doing, Jesus is declaring two things. He's declaring first and foremost that forgiveness is needed and that he is the one primarily sinned against. And he's declaring second that he has the authority to forgive sins. He declares that he is the one who is sinned against by all those people that he encounters. By all those people who dwell in this brokenness we call earth. By all those people who sin against one another, who do rotten things to one another. Jesus is declaring that he is the one that King David spoke about in Psalm 51 when David said, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Because if it's an offense before God, then it's an eternal offense. And Jesus is declaring that any sin, all sin, is an offense before God. And that we either bear it for eternity or it's forgiven for eternity. But not only that, but then Jesus declares that he has the authority to forgive. Because it's evening of that first day of the week. And we're reminded of what Jesus did to earn forgiveness. That he had gone to the cross that there on the cross he suffered a brutal death in separation from his father, declaring, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know the answer. It's because of our sins. 
declaring it is finished. The debt is paid in full. I have paid it with my lifeblood, declaring this because we couldn't pay it ourselves, that Jesus earned the forgiveness of sins on our behalf. Jesus did this so that he might declare to us, peace be with you. That you would know that complete and total forgiveness, that all who have sinned would know this total forgiveness, that we would know what Jesus has done. And then he does a remarkable thing. Not only does he forgive his people, but then he extends that forgiveness and that authority to forgive to all who have been forgiven. See, I I love John in this instance because he's so succinct. He doesn't waste any time. We don't learn exactly what's happening in the disciples' hearts and in their minds. Instead, he goes from peace be with you and their overjoy at meeting and seeing the Lord again to Jesus saying it again, peace be with you. He says it a second time. I think that second time is what really got their attention. In the midst of all of their joy at seeing him alive, he was saying to them, all is right between you and the Father. And then he continues, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Imagine if you're in the room. Imagine how confusing these words are. Imagine... Peter, again, being the first one who'd be willing to speak up and go, now, Jesus, when you say, as the Father sent you, we just watched you die on the cross. I'm not really sure I want to be sent in the same way that you were sent. I don't really want to walk that hard road. But that's exactly what Jesus declares to them. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. It means that the work of forgiveness that we are to be about is a difficult thing. It's a road that we can't travel on our own. When he says, the Father has sent me, I now send you, he's reminding us of the truth that forgiveness is no easy task and that we will not be able to do it on ourselves. We will not be able to do it on our own. And how do we know that? Because Jesus breathed on them the breath of life. Jesus breathed on them as God had done one other time. It was in the garden when he breathed the breath of life on them the first time. Now here is Jesus breathing new life on them once again, saying, receive the Holy Spirit, right? As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Receive the new life of the Holy Spirit in you. And now I want you to be about forgiveness. Whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whoever sins you don't forgive, they are not forgiven. I want you to be about the work of forgiveness. And you can't do it on your own. It can only happen with the breath of life of the Holy Spirit inside of you. It can only happen when God's peace dwells in you. When you know that you have been forgiven. And this is the task to which the church is called And this is the task to which the church calls pastors, to do this very task publicly, that I would stand in your midst and declare the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, not of my own accord or of my own spirit, but by the power of the Holy Spirit through what Jesus Christ has earned. Now that's what the church calls the pastor to do. To what end? That you would know that you are forgiven 
and that you would know that you are therefore sent into the world. And, and for a pastor, for me, do you know what that means? It means that I have to confront sin in my own life. It means that I can't run from it. It means that just like the disciples, I have to stand in the presence of Jesus and declare myself unfit and unrighteous. I have to be willing to fess up to all the things that I've done and the ways that I've sinned against God. So that I can declare the peace of God to you. So that you can do the same. So that you can declare your own unfitness. You can declare that on your own you're unrighteous. That you can know that you are forgiven and filled with the Holy Spirit so that you can go into the world and declare the same love of Jesus, the same forgiveness which he worked in you. Do you see how this works? This is what Jesus has in mind when he calls us into the world that we would first confront sin and that we would then see what Jesus has sent us to do. That forgiving, we would forgive others. It's a difficult task to which God calls us. And as you know that calling in your life, as you know that calling in you, it means that you have to continually be renewed in this. Um, I want to illustrate this for you with something that's common to us. You see, our worship services, when we come to worship, to receive God's gifts, to give praise to him for what he's done for us, during this time, we actually also model our own lives. When we come together, we're, we're modeling here during this hour, hour and a half together, what happens the rest of the week. And so we do various things, and, and when we think about them, or when we don't think about them, when they just become mindless, sometimes the meaning is lost. There's one thing in particular that I want to point you to. In just a few minutes, we're going to do this again, when it's time to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I'm going to speak to you the words that Jesus spoke to all of us, and then at the end of it, I'm going to say, the peace of the Lord be with you always. And the good Lutherans in the room are going to say and also with you. And then I'm going to say, thank you. Please extend that peace to others who've come to worship. And you know what you're going to do at that moment? You're going to go to somebody and you're going to be like, hey, good morning. How you doing? Good morning. But that's very different than extending the peace of God to one another. And that practice of extending peace isn't just about being friendly to the other people who are there. Though that's an important thing, don't get me wrong. It's saying to the people that are around you, there is nothing between us that I believe Jesus can't heal. It means that in the most difficult moments of forgiveness, in those moments when our heart feels hard, in those moments where we've had a recent squabble in the car on the way to church, it means the times when more serious things have happened. That we say, on my own power, I cannot but by the power of the Holy Spirit, I want the peace of Jesus to rest on us. And brothers and sisters, as we experience that, as we experience that forgiveness of sins, we then don't have to talk about forgiveness in the world. Instead, we can know that we are forgiven people who are sent by Jesus to forgive. That we can know the gift of God's peace resting on each one of us, that we can know God's work of salvation and forgiveness for all so that we can declare to a world that needs to hear it, peace be with you.
in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen.